0: This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, where the questions get serious treatment, the hosts get put in their places, and the really good books get to have their say in the matter. Your hosts are Nathan Gilmore, Michael Farmer, and David Grubbs. Welcome, listeners, to this, our 75th Christian Humanist Podcast. I'm David Grubbs. I'm a professor of English at Central Christian College of Kansas in McPherson, Kansas. Here it's a beautiful morning. I don't know what the morning is like in Georgia, where Nathan Gilmore, assistant professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia, is joining us from. Uh, how are you this morning, Nathan?
1: I'm doing fine, and it is already hot and humid this morning, so we are in for a long summer in Georgia. Hello.
0: Yeah, that's well. That's one of the things that that I I don't I don't miss. I wish I could sympathize with yesterday. you, Nathan.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, that uh, that third voice that you hear is, as usual, Michael Farmer, assistant professor of English at Crown College in the awesomely named Saint Bonifacius, Minnesota. Uh, how are you this morning, Michael? And how is the weather there?
3: Uh, it's it's been unseasonably warm, but unseasonably warm here. You know, in Late March is 60 degrees, so it's fairly pleasant. Oh, that sounds nice. The grass is green. By the way, David, I, I have bad news for you. I think pretty soon we're not going to be in St. Bonifacius anymore, not because the school is moving, but because uh, the county is being rezoned, and I think we're going to, from now on, be considered part of Waconia. But I don't know when that happens.
0: Uh, <laughs> not nearly <laughs> oh, as that fun. Hurt, <laughs> that hurts my heart a little bit, yeah, actually. I, th-
3: I thought it might.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I, I actually have a, a a buddy who went and you know named a character in a D and D campaign after where you live. He was, <laughs>
3: really?
0: he, he was so inspired by uh, the the awesomeness of the town name.
3: I'll have to I'll have <sighs> to take the matter before the city fathers and let them know. But they're naming D and D characters after it. Well, the town still yeah. exists.
0: Yeah, Wakona well, is not nearly as euphonious i think anywho um this morning our topic is uh, a response to a reader's email Uh, but before we get to that one uh we ought to see if we've got any more any any reader contact any uh, comments on the blog or anything like that we want to uh tip our hats to
1: yeah i in my experience the coolest reader contact uh we've had in our three years of podcasting i think it's been three years hasn't it Mm-hmm. we'll call oh, it'll it three, be three years
3: in october so it's been two and a half all
1: right two and a half years uh but at any rate this last sunday at church a uh, young couple uh came in to visit and i was actually talking to another family who had come forward with uh intent to be baptized right after service uh they're going to be baptized on easter by the way so good news there um uh, uh-huh. But uh, one of our deacons came to me and said, you know, you ought to meet this guy, Mike. Uh, He's another English person like you. I said, oh, okay, that's fun. So I went and talked to him and, uh, you know, found out that he uh, was starting a graduate program in English at UGA. He's going to specialize in rhetoric and composition, which is, of course, uh, one of my areas. Uh, so we had a good one little conversation areas. about that.
3: But, but no matter no matter what he had what 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 he'd been starting to program in, it would have been in one of your areas, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Helps to
1: advanced, be
0: Renaissance
1: man. Advanced subjunctive studies, yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but come to find out, he said, uh, you know, he had gone to Tacoa Falls College. I oh. said, oh, that's great. When did you graduate? And he said, two thousand nine. I said, oh, so you're probably too young to know Michael Farmer then. And he said, no, I know Michael. I uh, listened to his podcast. Uh, you might be interested in it. It's this thing called the Christian Humanist <laughs> Podcast.
3: <laughs> Brings your ego said, down a little bit, doesn't it, Nathan? Yeah.
1: <laughs> I said, I'm one of the hosts, dude. No, I didn't say it that way. Uh, but, uh, uh, bro. And, and, and all of a sudden, this light turned on for him, and he said, I thought when you were preaching, your voice sounded familiar. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Mike, Riefer, if you're this. listening to this, it was great to meet you in person. I think he and I are going to be meeting up for some coffee. I'm still leaning on him uh, to come join us at Athens Christian Church. But, uh, you know, no matter what happens, I'm certain we'll get together and talk rhetoric and philosophy and literature and other things that human beings do well.
0: Awesome.
3: <laughs> Let me tell you how area I am. Uh, I flew down to Florida for spring break and the whole time I was on the plane I was thinking shouldn't some of these people recognize my voice? <laughs> <laughs> we have like 300 listeners. You know, there's what? 300 million people in America.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: So so the, so the chances are something like literally like one, uh, one in a million. That's
3: one in right. 10 million. One one in a million is overstating it by a factor of ten.
0: <laughs> oh come on, it's just another zero.
3: But there's the three hundred people Podcast. on the plane. Our, list,
1: uh, our listeners are one in ten million.
0: <laughs> anyway, there's as a, a
3: minor internet right celebrity, I I constantly expect uh, special treatment when I
0: <laughs> when I fly and
3: go to restaurants.
0: Oh. it's uh... <laughs> I, 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 I don't. I don't know what, what, for whatever reason. Whenever somebody says, "Hey, I listen to that," I'm like, "Oh,
2: what? really?" <laughs> 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 no.
1: Oh, Any, right? Yeah. Yeah. Any other uh, listener feedback?
3: Yeah, we got an email from Davey Henrikson. Uh, He wanted to correct us on something I said last week, actually. He said when Michael was talking about Princeton at the turn of the 20th century, he contrasted that rather conservative generation with the current factory, factory, with the current faculty, naming Elaine Pagels as the standout, but Pagels is actually a member of Princeton University's religion department, where I study, not Princeton Seminary. While the seminary contains a broad spectrum of confessional beliefs, the institution and faculty are still defined by certain traditional Christian commitments, so I I accept your correction, and thank you for sending it in, and thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.
1: That's good to know. Yeah, I, and I that's... should have
3: known that because the Princeton Seminary, I believe, is PCUSA. Uh, so, you know. Yeah, I believe sh- that's right. I shame believe that's on me.
1: right. And one yeah. other bit of the, of of uh, listener feedback, reader feedback, really, which is pretty cool. Uh, Michael, I I don't know if you've responded to them yet, but we were contacted by the new theology and literature journal, uh, Imaginatio et Ratio. I'm probably mispronouncing that. Uh, and they are looking to actually publish a couple book reviews that Michael and I wrote for the Christian Humanist blog in the cool. inaugural issue of their journal. So very cool. On that front, we're I'm, I'm looking forward to looking with working with those folks. Uh, we'll probably link to them on the website at some point.
3: Have to try to get a full length article in the second issue, huh?
1: Oh, I might, I might if I've got time to write it. Right now, I'm I'm actually I've got. Thirteen pages drafted on my uh, rhetoric for a Christian college professors book. So,
3: you just don't slow that's down, nice. do you, Nathan?
1: <laughs> right now, no. I, I know the day is going to come when I, I'm going to say, "I want to grade my papers and take a nap, and that's it." So, right now, while I've got energy and motivation, I'm trying to ride that wave.
3: But I don't understand. I thought mm. college professors only worked 15 hours a week, 30 weeks. Yeah. A week. <laughs>
1: Yeah, if I meet one of those, I'll tell right. you.
3: Yeah, uh,
0: I, I I used to resent that on principle. Now I resent it on a whole new level.
3: Right.
1: Because <laughs> you're living it, dude.
3: <laughs> right. Who else do you know who works who works sixty five hour weeks for forty thousand dollars a year?
0: Um. Yeah. Not. Not. Yeah. No one's fine. <laughs> Us <laughs>
3: after after ten years of education. Yeah. Anyway. What are we talking about this yeah, week, David?
0: Uh, yeah, yeah. We need to not be better. Um <laughs> anyway, uh let's ref- let's return to uh uh we got an email from Brett who uh said some, some very nice things about the podcast uh but also said one of well one of the things that's always music to my ears and I know it is to uh, to yours as well is that we, we had talked him around to reading one of the great old books we love. Yay. Yay. Um, we are evangelical about our great old books. So um, this is this is the, the meat of the email. You talk a lot about Dante and your recommendation in the Humility episode especially piqued my interest. I remain hesitant to read it, however, because I'm afraid it's packed with illusions I won't get because I'm not really I'm not well-read in the things that came before Dante. I'm only familiar with Greco-Roman mythology at a high school level, and I've never read Plato, Aristotle, Homer, or Virgil. My question is, what, if anything, do I need to read before I tackle Dante? I thought that was a great question. So we're going to camp on it for a while. Um, of course, at the end of our last episode, Michael, you, you came pretty close to stealing my thunder. Um, <laughs> Uh, but you made a point worth discussing. Uh, you said uh, that Brett, and I quote, should buy a copy with footnotes. Um, that sounds simple, but it presents us with our first opportunity to meddle, I mean, advise. So uh, we've alluded to Dante translations that we've used before, but I mean, it's, it's been a while. I think maybe like the hell episode. Um, so we'll begin with you, Michael. So, which translations would you recommend? Uh, for readability, but also, I guess, uh, for, for scholarly helps as well.
3: Well, the only one I've ever used is Dorothy Sayers. Uh, she, she attempts to reproduce the rima of Dante's original text. I enjoyed it. My understanding is a lot of people don't like that translation. <laughs> they find it pat or whatever, I don't know. Uh, she does include numerous, numerous, uh, not footnotes, but endnotes. Um, so at mm. the end of each canto, you can flip to the end and see, uh, you know, what you're missing. Um, so the quality of the translation, I can't speak to because it's the only one I'm familiar with. But in terms of the footnotes, that is an excellent, or excuse me, once again, endnotes. That is an excellent uh, translation.
0: I remember it having um, some pretty cool introductory essays as well.
3: Right, mm-hmm. right. And like like I said, I I appreciated that it it reproduced the rhyme and meter of the original uh, Italian. But of course, it is much more difficult to rhyme in English than Italian. So I suspect in trying to make every line rhyme, she may have done a little bit of damage to the meaning of the text. And so I, 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 under, I, I've heard that a lot of people really don't like the Sayers translation and that a lot of people who don't think they like Dante, in fact, don't like Dorothy Sayers. So I can't recommend <laughs> it too wholeheartedly, especially since I have no experience with any other translation.
0: I, I think it's a good one to keep in the mix though. Um, though, though I, I will admit that there is, when you put, when you get that many rhymes in English going, even if they're good rhymes, it can't help but get a little bit sing-songy, and that's that the, just I think has something to do with the original must have it. been
3: sing-songy, because every word of well, Italian. Well, I think it's
0: <laughs> no, that's true, but I think they're used to that.
3: Yeah,
1: <laughs> right. That 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 is something that it, that sounds more like Italian than it sounds like English. Yeah, mm. and I mean part of that is I mean the whole business of the fact that you know our great poets you know did not write a whole lot of rhyming lines you know i mean you think of you know the great speeches in shakespeare's tragedies and the great speeches in you know milton's epics and there's some Mm -hmm. rhyme there but they're not primarily characterized by rhyme
3: and when they when Mm -hmm. they are it's distracting yeah yeah yeah
0: but even even chaucer who you know the the all the whole all of the Canterbury Tales that, that, that rhymes, uh-huh. um, but it's rhyming couplets, which means you never get more than um, you know two lines at a time that are rhyming with each other. Right. Um, if you've got entire little little stanzas that are picking up the same rhymes, um, you know it 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 has a you know a much more pronounced effect. And even in sonnets, you 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 alternate rhymes. It's not A-A-B-B-C-C-D-D, it's A-B-A-B. Right, right. right but Terza Rima's like up the that. the chiming like, of the rhyme.
3: Terza Rima's A-B-A-B-C-B, isn't it?
0: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So,
3: so, I mean, so it is alternating.
0: No, that's that's true, but sometimes um, my memory is, I can't point out an example because I don't have it sitting in front of me, but my memory is that sometimes, <laughs> uh, sometimes Dorothy... Uh, messes around with that particular rhyme scheme in order to make the stanza's content work just because, well, there aren't as many words that rhyme in English.
3: Right. Have, any, right, have, right. have either of have you ever tried to translate foreign language poetry into English?
0: Um, yes. If, if old English poetry counts, but...
1: Oh, I think it does. I would think
0: it does. Okay.
3: I, I never appreciated how difficult that is until I had to do it. Translating prose is one thing. Translating yeah. poetry and trying to keep the, the any semblance of the meter and rhyme scheme of the original is just a slog. I tried to translate, I think, Paul Verlaine from French, and it was mm-hmm. so hard. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Let me just say that none of my translations of Verlaine are going to be published anytime soon. <laughs>
2: yeah.
0: It's really, really hard to do. So the fact that, that anyone even... Uh, I guess took up that gauntlet is uh, an impressive. Uh, well, I guess so. Something of their self confidence, at least. Mm-hmm. Um, Nathan, I think you're on record as one of those who, who's who's not so much fun of the of the the, the, the attempt to replicate Persian in English.
1: No, I'm um, not a big fan. Largely, like I said, because English. Is not a language that is as given to rhyme as our Latin and Italian. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, and incidentally, I mean, that's not only English. I mean, also, there are, and I did some research on this in seminary, there were uh, Jewish poets in Muslim Spain in the Middle Ages who tried to write rhyming Hebrew poetry. And oh my goodness, is it awful! <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what what rhymes with, (laughs) yeah, well, exactly. I mean, you know, the, the Psalms have their power because they are using poetic forms that are growing out of the Hebrew language, uh, when Mm -hmm. they, but Arabic on the other hand is very naturally a rhyming language like Latin and Italian are. So basically since Arabic poetry with its rhyme was the dominant cultural form, these Jewish poets tried to mimic that in Hebrew and, oh, goodness.
0: <laughs> so what would you suggest instead?
1: Okay, well, uh, I've actually got two translations that I would want to commend. Uh, one of them is John Ciardi's translation, which is sort of a middle ground sort of tra- translation. Uh, he rhymes uh, not – he doesn't try to mimic the rhyme scheme exactly, but he dr- tries to incorporate some end rhyme into each stanza, uh, which in my mind is a good compromise. Uh, His edition also has very, very nice uh, notes at the end of every canto. Um, It's one I probably would use it to teach, except that there's one with even better notes at the end of every stanza, and that is Mark Musa's translation, uh, which right now uh, Penguin Books is publishing as one of their, uh, uh, what is it, Penguin Classics?
3: Yeah. Mm.
1: Okay, okay. They do
3: the Sayers as well, I believe.
1: Oh, do they really? Okay. Uh, How do you spell that
3: last name? It's
1: uh, M-U-S-A.
3: Oh, all
0: right. Well, that's fairly easy.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, And his uh, doesn't attempt to do the rhyme at all. Uh, It is going more for a word-for-word, phrase-for-phrase sort of translation, trying to replicate the connotation of the Italian uh, without much concern at all for the feel of it rhythmically. Uh, and again, that that is the translation that I've been teaching the Purgatory from when I teach it over at Emmanuel College, largely because the notes at the end of every stanza are just great, especially for students without a whole lot of background in classical antiquity. So, those are the two translations I would commend. What about
3: you, Grubbs? Well,
0: I, I I I use um I, I use the Sayers like you, Michael. Um, they're it's not the first translation that I encountered it in but the first translation I encountered it in I don't even remember who did it. It was this cheap version of Inferno that I found at a thrift store. It had no notes whatsoever oh uh and so so yeah, I'll be honest i didn't f I i I didn't even make it through because i just i was i was so lost um I remember it being pretty readable, but again, you know, I had, you know, I had the problem of the problem of, you know, inexplicable illusions and, right. you know,
1: and for our younger readers, this was the, de- this my was experience. De- this before Wikipedia. So
0: yes, <laughs> we, which, I, which always up. drive
1: me nuts is I'll ask my students, you know, what a reference is in a text and I'm like, people, you've got, Resources available to you at the click of a mouse that I couldn't dream of when I was an undergrad. <laughs> Don't you know
3: they only, use, they only use Wikipedia to write their papers, Nathan? Yeah,
1: there you go, there you go.
3: <laughs> Nathan, what do you think of the Alan Mandelbaum version? I know that's kind of the English classic version.
1: Yeah, I, I, I have glanced at it, and I mean, it seems like a fine enough translation. I mean, honestly, I as far as, you know, comparative translations, I mean even with bible translations i am happy with most translations that i run across so i'm i'm very much a mm-hmm. a a promiscuous reader when it comes to translations of non-english texts <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. I, I i think that's a good a good thing to do anyway um because you 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 really do need to um uh, when when you're when you're working with dante just as you know when you're working with um well, with it, with any other text in translation, you, you need to keep more than one translation around to remind you that the kind of close reading you can do with with poetry in English, um, poetry and translation is going to resist.
1: Yeah, yeah.
3: Well, it's actually um, – so, it's, it's actually one of the great advantages to reading literature in translation is that you do get to approach it from multiple angles if you want to in a way that you can't with English poetry.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. Well, you can see. Yeah, you can. I guess you can see it as a feature. I, I'm always kind of frustrated because my inclination is to is to very close read.
3: Yeah, you're but you're also having, pro- probably more interested in getting at the author's original intent than I am.
0: Well, I mean, or or even just you know analyzing the grammatical structure of a sentence. Right. But then I Which have I'm to remember a minute, this, is, this is this is Dorothy Sayers' sentence. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so so yeah, keeping more than one translation around is just a, a just a good idea anyway. Like, I've never um, been more glad
3: that Kant wrote in German instead of English than when I had to write a lecture on the uh, foundations of the metaphysics of morals, and I was able to simultaneously look at three or four translations to see how, how different people translated those incomprehensible sentences. That is helpful,
0: yeah. So, so yeah, take it, take advantage of that with Dante as well. Um, Well, before I move on to the next one, I do have one little point. Um, In his introduction to the discarded image, um, which I've been rereading, uh, C.S. Lewis argues that if you're reading a footnote heavy text, especially the first time you read it, that it can be more of a detriment to the experience than an advantage. Um, Has has that been y'all's experience, Michael?
3: I think with something like Dante that, that leans so heavily on 13th century politics, not having the footnotes is more of a detriment. It, it is true okay. that, that you can get kind of bogged down in the secondary material, but with something like that, I'm not sure you can make it through three books of the divine comedy with, without knowing that material without footnotes. You know what I mean? Right. So it's a balance. act. What about
1: act. you, knew? Yeah. Oh, I... I I'm... I'm familiar with that passage in Lewis, David, and I'm, I'm inclined to think that that is C.S. Lewis, assuming that everyone is C.S. Lewis. <laughs> uh, you know, well, you know, everyone can spot allusions to Roman Republican history and Greek mythology and Florentine politics and all of that sort of thing. So why would you need footnotes? They would only slow you down. <laughs> you know, like I got, well, I'm sorry, Clive. My, <laughs> I, I spent too much of my childhood watching Thundercats and not enough reading
0: Plutarch. <laughs> right,
2: right. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. When Don
0: starts making you know Liono references, you're on
1: it. You know, and the <laughs> and the Malabranc demon did say Schnarf. <laughs> <laughs>
0: oh. Yeah. Uh which, uh, by the uh, way, th- those are all available. On, comedy for our ages. <laughs> those
1: are all available on Netflix now. So actually, my seven-year-old son has watched a goodly number of of Thundercats Instead episodes, of but... learning
3: his Plutarch.
0: Exactly.
3: <laughs> Most, yeah, Plutark
0: is not yet on Netflix.
3: Congra- congratulations, <laughs> Nathan. You're spreading your ignorance into a new generation.
0: Yes, I am. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I mean, I I, I don't well. You know, granted, you know, wouldn't it be nice to read literature and like be C.S. Lewis simultaneously? Um, most of us don't have that luxury, like every all, all of us except like C.S. Lewis um, or Dorothy Sayers, to be fair. I, I, I imagine she probably would have said much the same thing. Um, I get, I always get the feeling that she just wrote the footnotes out of her head, <laughs> but um, that, that's, that's probably not true. But but that that's how it comes across.
1: It's a fun picture. But,
0: but it it does, I think, always help to have as as much in your mind of, you know, what the author could be referring to, things like that, before you get into it. Oh, sure. Um, so that it doesn't slow you down, and that's that's kind of what I'd like to do in the rest of the episode. Um, obviously, we can't we can't possibly cover enough to make footnotes redundant, and there's in, in no way would. We or anyone listening to us be able to remember all of us, all, all of it, even if we did do some amazing, uh, you know, all the, all the footnotes to Dante Marathon episode. <laughs> um, so just going to try to hit some high points here that, that maybe, maybe can help you get a little bit further through some passages without having to flip to the back of the book and break your rhythm. So anyhow, um, I will confess that Dante's Divine Comedy is one work um, where I have an awfully difficult time following my own advice that I give to my students, which is to distinguish between the poet who is in history and the poetic persona, uh, which is the voice speaking from the poetry. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, I don't think that's entirely my fault
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: in, in in the Divine Comedy, um, but still, it raises a question, and I'm going to pitch it at you, Nathan. Um, to what degree does knowing Dante's biography and his historical context help us in reading the comedy?
1: Well, the first thing I will say is it is a lot more helpful in the Inferno than it is in the Purgatory or the Paradise. Uh, Once you get into the realms of the saved, uh, all of the snippy little backbiting political struggles, uh, well, because people are saved, don't matter as much. (laughs) Uh, You know, uh, for... (laughs) For Dante, politics is hell, and all of the politics happen in hell. Uh, or I would say most of them. All right. So Some listener's going to write in and say, well, actually, in Purgatory, Canto number 27. But, okay, I realize that. Okay. Um, <laughs> that said, one of the things that I think gets overemphasized when people teach Dante is the struggle between the Gelfs and the Givalines. Uh These are two factions in 13th century Florence. The Gelfs are the pro-Roman party, the Ghibellines are the party that's leaning more towards the Holy Roman Empire which of course is neither holy nor Roman nor an empire Um, (laughs) because I just love quoting Voltaire Um, and then of course within the Guelph party once they drive out the Ghibellines they split into the White Guelphs which are more of a Republican faction, they want to establish independence from Rome and then the Black Guelphs which are more inclined to align themselves with Roman power. And, of course, in this period, Roman power means military power as well as spiritual power because uh, the Pope's got both the swords, which is why Dante mm. is always concerned with saying that we need an actual Roman Empire uh, so that the Pope isn't fielding armies. <laughs> uh, right. So, I mean, that part, it is you know somewhat helpful to know a bit of the context. Now, as far as uh, how many episodes actually feature, you know, this Gelf-Gibling thing. Uh, It's a handful of episodes, almost exclusively in the Inferno, and really the footnotes can help you out. You don't need an extensive history of gelf Gibbling Florentine politics in order to understand the poem. Uh, Now, as far as his personal biography, it's helpful to know that uh, Beatrice is not his wife. Uh, It's a young girl that he met one time and sort of got obsessed over. As far as we can tell from his... (laughs) Biography: He was in an arranged marriage that he resented his entire life, uh, which frankly, I mean, makes him a very medieval figure. You know, he is a, a low-level aristocratic sort of dude in a marriage he resents and who obsesses over a woman to whom he is not married. Um, Hello, Petrarch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Petrarch or... <laughs> every king arthur story ever written or <laughs> uh you know uh so again i mean he's very much a man of his times uh he's not by any means an exemplar for uh, marital fidelity
2: <laughs> mm.
1: so i mean re- really i mean those two points are the ones that i take with me when i head into the divine comedy to read it each time the rest of it i pick up in the footnotes
0: cool so, you think footnotes and introductory essays are enough to perform that function? Do we need? Uh, do for we need me, to they are. I mean, I've t-
1: I've had conversations <laughs> with people who say that a detailed knowledge of Dante's biography, you know, brings out a richness in the comedy that I'm missing. Uh, I think it's plenty rich without it. So, I mean, listeners, if you disagree with me on that point, by all means, comment on the show notes because I, I stand to be corrected if you're there to correct me.
0: Right. White well,
3: gelfs and black
0: gelfs.
3: Sounds like a set of Tolkien characters.
1: Oh, and see, it's like, I, like my my first thought was, uh, you know, the gelfs and the ghiblins, or the crips and the bloods, see, and then I, you know, uh, I,
3: I always <laughs> imagine them I'm wearing weird pointy hats.
1: Oh, see, I and then I imagine the black gelfs and the white gelfs as sort of the north side crips and the south side crips.
0: <laughs> well, I'm I'm imagining jets and sharks.
3: When you're a gulf, you're a gulf all the way, yes, I guess past your last day, dying day, huh
0: yeah, there you go, yeah, yes, yes, yeah, to the grave, man um well, no no one says that you can't read the uh, the comedy, go read a Dante biography and then go read it again, so sure, sure. you know the, the, the it's one of the, it's one of the great works. That, well, I mean, like, like so many of the greats, that you can read and get a lot out of without knowing a whole lot um, yeah. going into it. You can go off and learn more and then come back to it and get even more out of it. Right. Because right. It, it grows with you because Dante, well, Dante is so, so far above you. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> when you start off he just keeps being above you
1: and, and just to reiterate <laughs> what i said in early episodes i mean i read the comedy in its entirety i believe seven times now yeah. and i mean it, it gets better each time and i've taught the purgatory once now and i'll teach it again next spring right but wonderful wonderful stuff
0: well we need to i think turn from from biographical history to history of ideas um Dante has been praised for his comprehensive and detailed synthesis of so much of the best of what was thought and said at his time. And when I say praised, I mean, well, mostly by C.S. Lewis, but I think other people have said that, too. (laughs) Um, So let's try to get beyond the footnotes um, again and look at some of the intellectual context for Dante. Uh, We'll start with you, Michael. And since we just finished our triptych on virtues, uh, there was one – work that just kept coming up in those episodes which i think is super relevant now um which is uh the nicomachean ethics so say a bit about the ethics um but particularly what role they play in how dante explores vice and virtue
3: well because dante's system owes so much to thomas aquinas which i know nathan's going to get to in just a minute um and because thomas aquinas owes so much to aristotle Dante's system obviously owes quite a bit to Aristotle, and so it's implicit in the structure of the Inferno itself, and and this this implicit reference becomes an explicit reference in Canto 11, I believe, Uh, Virgil and Dante kind of sit down before they go into uh, the seventh circle of hell, and Dante asks about why hell is organized the way it is. Why are there these divisions? Why isn't everybody just burning together? And Virgil, in his response, appeals to the Nicomachean (laughs) ethics. And he says that Mm -hmm. God dislikes three dispositions. He dislikes incontinence, mallets, and insane brutality. Incontinence offends him least. Thus, we have to have a structure where the people who are merely incontinent are not... um, Not... Punished as severely. And those divisions come eventually from the Nicomachean Ethics, but through the intermediary of Thomas Aquinas' commentary on that book. So um, the answer is, he owes quite a bit to Aristotle, but mostly indirectly. Mm -hmm. But the whole thing does come from the Nicomachean Ethics eventually.
0: How I mean, you just you just taught the Nicomachean Ethics, if I remember correctly. How is it? Um, how approachable is it as you know, as an as an old book to read just on its own?
3: Um, I I'd say it's moderately difficult. It's it's one of Aristotle's easier treatises. Uh, I think you could understand mm-hmm. it, but it is not a breezy read. Yeah. <laughs> It, it, it's. Okay. I mean, it's not. The, it's not even the poetics, which is more difficult than most Plato, but still easier than most Aristotle. It's. It's in the middle. I would mm-hmm. say Dante's okay. easier to read than the Nicomachean Ethics.
1: Yeah, okay. I'd agree with that.
0: All right. Still, I think probably probably worth people encountering at least at least in part. Um, I, I I don't think I've ever sat down and read the whole Daggum thing. Um. I would be. I would get interested in. Okay, so where do we get? You know. You know where? Where did the Middle Ages get its notion of uh, self-control and the way it relates to X vice? You know things mm-hmm. like that. And you know, I go to the Summa, and then and then Thomas would keep saying the philosopher says these things. I'm like, okay, now I gotta go. Gotta go to the philosopher. The
3: philosopher always says these things. <laughs> <laughs>
0: But yeah, that, that's that's mainly how I encounter it, um, you know, because I, I I always want to, well, because I've found footnoted editions of books in which the footnotes lied a little bit, <laughs> so uh, when, when I can, I like to I like I like to check the footnotes and actually kind Missouri, of read something about that.
3: David, the show me state, if you, you actually go look up the stuff in a footnote instead of taking the footnotes word for it.
0: Well, I don't know. I don't do it all the time, but every once in a while I'll read a footnote that I'm like, that can't be right. And so I'll check up on it. I, I did and more than read, all, read straight often straight than it not, it is right.
3: I, I, I did hmm? read straight through Aristotle's corpus. Um, not not the whole thing, but I, I don't know, three, three quarters of it. Nicomachean Ethics is on the easy side of, of his writing.
1: Yeah, it is. Okay.
0: Cool. Um, let's see. All right. Well, okay. We, we've taught, we've talked about uh, the philosopher and I already, I already tossed Thomas. We've already, we've already brought up Thomas (laughs) since he's, he's our, he's our filter, uh, for the philosopher. And he also kept coming up in our discussion of, of virtues. Um, and if I remember correctly, Nathan, you've said that Dante is your famous, your, your favorite Thomist. Yes. So maybe focusing not as much on, uh, uh, not as much on uh, Vice or something, but uh, what, what's Thomas's contribution to the comedy?
1: Well, first of all, uh, Dante, I always say he's my favorite Thomas because of the things he changes about Thomas. And <laughs> while, I, while I love Thomas, I think that one of the things that he inherits from Aristotle is a tendency to talk about uh, virtue and vice in very abstract terms. Uh, Which is not to say that he's a modern individualist or anything silly like that, but rather the style of his discussions is such that uh, he is establishing large universal categories rather than getting down on the ground and exploring what I would call casuistry or practical ethics. Uh, Dante, on the other hand, whenever you get to the paradise, which, I mean, definitely keep slogging away till you get to the paradise... uh, the measure of virtue in the entire comedy, but it comes across most prominently in the third of the three canticles is that when Dante has a doubt about whether something ought to be done or ought not to be done, his first thought is always, would this please Beatrice? Mm -hmm. And that idea that virtue and vice is always a matter of living with other people and more specifically living with those people that you look at as saintly and good, I think is a very, very helpful addition. I wouldn't say a contradiction, because like I said, I think it's a matter of style and of emphasis rather than of content. Uh, but Dante's emphasis on the social in ethics, I think, is a wonderful addition to what is already a comprehensive and a good system in Thomas. Mm.
3: Cool. and it, that, that that's um, also that also goes back to the Nicomachean ethics right uh, Aristotle is very insistent that you can't you can't really be good apart from the polis apart from society. sure sure
1: and you know Alistair right. McIntyre's book uh, a short history of ethics or a brief history of ethics I forget what adjective is in there I always have to go to my bookshelf to look yeah. Uh, he discusses that, you know, the fact that the very vocabulary of goodness in the Greek language, the Agathos word uh, in Homer means it always has social connotations in Homer. Let me put it that way. Uh, So in Mm -hmm. other words, it is lexically impossible for a slave to be Agathos. Uh, It's only possible for a king or at, at at most a stratego to be Agathos, you know, so you have to be, Uh, in charge of people in order to be Agathos. And I keep saying that word instead of good because later on when Hesiod, no, not Hesiod, um, Sappho, there we go, when Sappho and Plato and Aristotle pick up the word, it becomes more generalized. But Michael's Mm -hmm. absolutely right. It still keeps that very social feel to it. It's still rooted in your relationship to other people based on who you are. Mm Mm-hmm.
3: Well, think about how little the ancient Greeks want to be exiled. How how death and yeah. torture and all those other things are preferable to being having to live in a city other than your own city.
1: Yeah. Uh huh.
0: I th- I think too it, it it helps to you know in the relationship of Dante and Beatrice and him wanting to please her that that, that Beatrice is uh, sort is, is sort of a training ground in the comedy for Dante's. Um, moral affections oh absolutely um, absolutely you know that that his. you know he should he should see virtue as you know does what i do you know does what i do please you know you know not just other people and not excluding other people but ultimately it should be does does what i do please god um mm-hmm. you know, oh yeah yeah god, yeah and, and like i yeah, said that, that's god why i emphasizing.
1: you know it's not does what i do impress this young girl it's does what I right. do make the saintliest among us smile?
3: Right.
0: Yeah, and 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 you know, and that's how. Well, I mean, that that's I, I think how children should learn virtue is by wanting to desire to do the things that make their parents smile, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. and then just transpose that into ever higher keys. Sure. <laughs> hmm. Um. Which kind of leads me transposing things into ever higher um, keys <laughs> I want to say a little bit about medieval cosmology uh, because dante is one of the great uh one of the great writers uh, poetic writers uh about uh about cosmology he's he has this very structured universe that's constantly mirroring and uh re, you know reflecting these these structures that uh, reverse and invert and um, you know, alter the way human beings sort of naturally assume the the world works. Um, he, he, You know, you, you start off sort of seeing the earth as the center of everything and you kind of look out to the edge of space and heavens out around there somewhere, and by the time you get to the end of paradise, the universe is, has turned inside out and now um, – it's, it's the divine presence that's the middle, um, which is cool. I don't have a single book uh, to recommend for that. Well, at least I don't have a single old book to recommend for that. Um, I'd point you to uh, a book I alluded to, uh, I alluded to earlier, um, Lewis's Discarded Image and Introduction to Medieval and Renaissance Literature,
3: mm-hmm.
0: um, which uh, basically tries to sketch from a number of – influential classical and post-classical sources um the uh well at, at least a a a dominant medieval worldview not that everyone you know everyone in the middle ages was walking around with every single detail of this structure in their head um but it but you know, the, the the notion of the moon being the border between the ethereal heavens and the sky of air, which is as, you know, far as kind of mortal creatures can go, you know, the moon being the border between the changeable earth and the unchangeable heavens. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, the the idea of these, you know, layers of hierarchies of, of spiritual beings between us and God that God uses as intermediaries. Um these are things that, that you know, Medievals like Dante were getting through people like Pseudyonysus, the Areopagite, writing about angels, and probably the one of the most confusing books ever. Um, <laughs> fragments of Cicero then expanded by Macrobius uh, into this uh giant exploration of the physical structure of the universe um Basically, I, I, turn, I, I steer you towards discarded image because a lot of these things that are informing medieval cosmology, the texts themselves sometimes aren't super readable. Um, and so C.S. Lewis giving kind of an expanded summary and then application of it is useful, um, especially useful since he frequently brings up Dante uh, to show, you know, and here at this point in the comedy, you can see this idea referred to. It's pretty readable um, fairly short clocks in about two hundred twenty pages um, and uh, I think it's pretty readily available so if if you're interested in the in the world that Dante is describing, um, I recommend the discarded image as a, a guide to that um, obviously though we can't we can't do do this episode without some kind of salute to Dante's guide through the first two books, um, the Roman poet Virgil. So obviously we can't talk about every kind of literary work that might have its fingerprints on Dante's style and content, but, uh, he points us towards Virgil. So I think we need to, uh, say something about that as well. So Nathan,
1: yes. Um,
0: in, can you tell us in what ways Virgil the poet can guide us readers of the comedy as well as the character Virgil guiding the character Dante?
1: Right. Well, first of all, obviously the guide through the first two canticles of the comedy is Virgil, uh, who is a creation of Dante. You know, Dante is familiar with some of the biographical details and certainly with the texts of Virgil, but, uh, if you think you know what Virgil's personality is like, odds are you got it from Dante. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll, I'll just go ahead and go out on a limb there. Just like if you think you know what happened with the devils, how they fell from heaven and became devils, you're probably getting it from Milton.
0: <laughs> or Genesis B.
1: <laughs> Most people, David, who are not Anglo-Saxonists like you and me, probably got it from Milton. <laughs> uh, Fair enough. But... Uh, Book six of the Aeneid is one that I want to sit on for a bit because in that book, uh, Aeneas descends uh, at the site of Mount Avernus, uh, or Awareness, if you're going to pronounce it like a Virgilian, like you probably should, uh, to descend into the underworld as Virgil imagines it. And Virgil modifies uh, Homer's vision of the afterlife pretty significantly. Uh, Homer, of course, has Odysseus descend into the afterlife in the Odyssey. Uh, Mainly in that it is a much more structured vision of sort of soul sorting than you see Mm -hmm. in Homer. Uh, In Homer, you do see some souls being punished, but as far as, you know, there being a system for who goes where after they are shipped off to Avernus, uh, there's not as much of a sense of that. In Virgil, you actually have a series of variegated paths that people take based on what sort of lives they led. Uh, And what's interesting of course, is that as Virgil imagines it. um, And again, this is something that Dante picks up. It's not just from Aristotle. He gets this emphasis on the social. Uh, If you look at the catalog of sins for which people are sent into the inferno uh, in Virgil's Aeneid, they are all violations of certain social contracts. Uh, whether it is betrayal of superiors like military commanders, kings, priests, so on and so forth, whether, whether it is betrayals of friendship or relationship with equals, or whether it is abuse of spouses, children, slaves, and other social inferiors in the Roman system. In any of those cases, uh, it's always the social sins that get people cast into the inferno uh, in Virgil's vision of it. Uh, And like we said before, I mean, that's decidedly one of the factors that influences Dante's afterlife. The geography is also a strong echo. The four rivers of the afterlife are there in Virgil. Uh, The sort of shape of the underworld where you have various roads that you can travel and observe things rather than being sent there, also from Virgil. Uh, So in other words, I mean, the poetic furniture, if you will, uh, and I borrowed that term from a CWC, the radio show episode from a while back. Uh, is decided is decidedly Virgilian.
0: Cool. So, in terms of readability, uh-huh. uh huh. Would you? I mean, would you suggest? You know, hey, go read that chunk of the Aeneid.
1: Uh in terms of readability, I'd say go read the whole Aeneid. I oh. I love Virgil. Awesome. I, I I I know Michael disagrees with me on that. That's not by any means the only thing on which Michael and I disagree, but I think that...
3: Let me speak directly to the listeners for a moment. There are three books of the Aeneid you need to read, two, four, and six. (laughs) Everything else you can just tear out and throw away.
1: Oh, funny, funny.
3: (laughs) You really like the whole thing, Nathan?
1: I really do. I mean, it's one of those things like I'm looking forward to... Well, I mean, first of all, I, uh, listeners should know that every Christmas break I always read an epic, uh, and whenever Virgil comes up in the rotation, I'm always looking forward to that Christmas.
3: I mean, I guess it'd be better than reading Ariosto's *Furioso* or whatever it is.
0: Hey, I like Orlando <laughs> Furioso.
3: I've never read that. I should I should I sh- say I, uh, I should I shouldn't say that because I, I don't really know anything about that. But man, yeah. I, I was looking forward to reading. I read the *Aeneid*. I think for the first time last summer, and man, did I find it unpleasant. <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh, I like what? the Iliad, so it's two to three. All right, you um, guys win. Or two to two to sorry, two to one. Um, I, I do want to say a little something about Orlando Furioso, but this actually <laughs> is relevant. Um, I discovered Orlando Furioso through a footnote in Spencer's Fairy Queen. Mm-hmm. Uh. The, if you get an annotated fairy Queen, which it's, it's, it's hardly it's, – it's, it's like the Divine Comedy. You can't hardly read the thing without footnotes. It, it assumes you, you, you need so much cultural knowledge. I kept encountering footnotes that were pointing me back to Orlando Furioso. And so for a long time, I thought of Orlando Furioso as the place where Spencer footnotes come from. <laughs> um, eventually – I found a good translation of it at the library, and I read it and loved it. It was amazing. It was so cool, (laughs) and it was so much more than a source of footnotes for Spencer. Right, right. Um, So if I can turn that around, I think this is an argument to – I mean you can get a copy of The Divine Comedy and read it through with the footnotes. And you know, get a good experience, and the footnotes will probably find enough for you to get out of Dante what you want. But if you keep encountering something like, if you keep encountering the Nicomachean Ethics, if you keep encountering the Aeneid um, in the footnotes, maybe it'd do you some good if you go back and read the play, read read the work where the footnotes came from. Mm-hmm. And then and then come back to the comedy because what I, what I found was after I read Orlando Furioso I found out that Spencer's actually conversing with Ariosto almost the whole time, not just in the places where my edition had footnotes. Yeah, and having read it, I saw so much more so many, so many more connections connections between the works than were even being pointed out to me, and I think you would probably find the same thing. In um, Dante's Divine Comedy, if you read, you know, one or two or three of these these other works that we're kind of pointing towards, I think you'll find so much more even than your footnotes will reveal. So, you know, that that's that's my pitch for going and reading the old books.
1: Right. And I'll also say in praise of Aeneas, uh, if you read the Iliad and you find Achilles to be entirely too much like a spoiled right, wide receiver. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Re- read the Aeneid. Uh Aeneas is one of your good uh hard nosed, hard hitting linebackers.
0: Awesome. <laughs> Even if he is kind of a jerk to Dido, but it's not entirely his fault. She kinda of threw herself at him. Let our readers Aeneas. read. <laughs> <laughs> well, it wasn't really her fault either. It was it was, you know, Aeneas's meddlesome mother. This is true. I I
3: just find anyway. that book to be bad Homeric fan fiction.
0: <laughs> uh, I think it stands up pretty well against bad fan fiction these days.
3: oh well, that's true, but. <laughs>
0: and see, I, I love me some Virgil,
1: so I I just cannot go along with Michael on that one.
3: I like the bucolics. Mm-hmm.
1: I enjoy okay. those as well, <laughs> but I
3: but I, I I don't like I don't like the Aeneid no. In fact, I was just reading Perseus the other day, and he says, uh, Arms in the Man. What desiccated old rubbish. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah. What?
0: Anyway, um, uh, I know Brett referred to uh, Greco Roman mythology. Um, I, obviously, we can't. I mean, I, I could say go read Ovid. And then you go read Hesiod, and then you read Homer, even though um they didn't really have Homer till the end of the Middle Ages. Um the they didn't have it in 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 Greek. Um they did have the stories that were in Homer retold through various Latin sources, but mostly Homer was known as it uh, was was known at uh second and third hand at best. Mm-hmm. Um
1: kind of like a oh, brother where art thou
0: kind of <laughs> except except with like more of the same names <laughs> <laughs> but i i would steer you to uh i would steer re, uh, listeners to you know the venerable edith Hamilton. it's not terribly complicated um but one of the things that that hamilton does that i respect is she keeps stories from particular classical sources together and she'll tell you at the beginning of a section this particular story is coming out of Ovid Mm -hmm. and I'm adapting his version of it or you know this particular episode from the story of Jason and the Argonauts is coming from this particular version of that so that um, she isn't just sort of taking all of the stories uh, that have been told about a particular character and then digesting and hum- homogenizing them she's at least trying to give you some sense that the sources are more complex and she's pointing you towards where those are and she's keeping she's trying to keep the versions separate and in and in, in several instances she does tell more than one version of a story mm-hmm. so that you can you can keep things separate so if you don't have time to track down every single primary Text about mythology. Um, I think Edith Hamilton does a good job of of getting the main narratives there, um, particularly a lot of them that that, that Dante that does use as fuel. You know, why is it that Minos is judging people in hell? That's weird. Um, stuff like that. I think she does a good job of presenting those narratives, but also uh, not obscuring the source material. So. Yeah, I would. i just go to Edith Hamilton. Well, we need to uh, uh, kind of start winding things down, and just to have a couple t- more bases to tag. Um, and this briefly, in my experience as a reader, um, a lot of times I found that reading a later work that's inspired by or kind of in conversation with some earlier work actually helps me to better understand and appreciate the earlier work. So. Do you guys have any kind of later work that relate to the comedy in that way for you?
3: Well, I uh, I think basically any work where you have some sort of quest that sends you through the underworld, post-Dante is going to refer back to Dante in some way. So I'm thinking of Hart Crane's... Uh, long poem the bridge which is a, a modernist classic it's about the brooklyn bridge it uses the bridge of course as this symbol of artistic ingenuity and a celebration of all things human but before you can get there you have to go through the tunnel which is a description of a subway ride through new york city this i assume is the early days of the new york city subway. has either of you ever read the new york city subway
1: can't say mm. that i have
3: it's kind of a glorious hellish place I mean, you're underground, everything's very old, everything's very rattly. Um, Victoria and I went there on our honeymoon, and we were were riding the subway, and a mariachi band began to play in the car, which is weird enough, except nobody looked up. Like, not one person in the car paid any attention at all, and I thought, oh my god, I could die here, and nobody would care. But at the same time, it's <laughs> it's, it's, it's at the same time, it's very exhilarating and very exciting to ride it for people like me who like public transportation and cities. And I think I think Hart Crane's kind of in the same headspace. This this tunnel he goes uh, on, in this rattling subway car is um, is hell, and you know the route to paradise. Because the fact is, Dante goes through the Inferno so that he can get to the so he can get to Purgatory and he can get to Paradise. And uh, I, I think Crane tends to see the the tunnel in that poem the same way. Um, and the other one I want to talk about is Cheever's, John Cheever's The Swimmer, which I, I can't give credit where credit is due because I don't remember. Years ago, I read an article that argued that that was essentially a uh, Dantean trip through the Inferno. Um, and, and it stuck with me every time I've read that story since. If you don't know that story, it's about a young man who's not young anymore. He kind of wants to maintain his youth. He lives in Bullet Park, which is Cheever's suburb of New York, and he, um, he decides he wants to swim the length of the county. He's at a party on a Sunday afternoon, and he wants to swim everybody's swimming pool all the way back to his. It's eight miles, and he's just going to swim it through these swimming pools. And as he goes through, spoiler alert, you, you learn that, in fact, his life has not gone the way he wanted it to and that he is just now becoming aware of it, that this is hell the whole time essentially. His family has left him. Um, he goes to these pools that are out of water. He goes through one, one place where it's an old couple sitting naked by their pool, and he's made very uncomfortable. And, and so I, I have, ever since I read that article, and I wish I could remember who wrote it, ever since I read that, I've always thought of that as a kind of inferno in miniature and a personal inferno, without, of course, any hope of purgatory or paradise, because this is Cheever we're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> do you guys know that story?
1: No, I'm <laughs> not familiar with it.
3: Uh, it's one of the great New Yorker stories. You should. It's ten pages. You can read it quickly. It, it's uh, it, it's worth looking at. It's it's very moving. Hmm. Now that I've ruined it for you. <laughs> anyway, Nathan, what do you got?
1: Well, I've also got two things. Uh, the first one is uh, T.S. Eliot's poem, "The Wasteland, Land," uh, the first division, "The Barrel of the Dead." ends with a vision of a crowd flowing over the London Bridge. uh, And we actually get a a direct quotation, I mean, or I guess translation, if you will, from Dante's Inferno. I had not thought death had undone so many. Uh, Now, the first time I read Wasteland, I hadn't encountered Dante yet. So, you know, I thought, okay, he's saying that, you know, people who live in the city are basically dead on their feet. Okay, I get it. Then I came to Dante and realized, oh, that's where it's from. And it is Mm -hmm. from the scene early in the Inferno where the people are lined up, not because there are any guards making them, but because God has given them over to their hellish desires. So they are inwardly compelled to seek out hell. And it's one Mm -hmm. of the most horrifying scenes in Dante. I mean, the Inferno is one of the scariest books you will ever read if you take it seriously. Uh, And, you know, these people are weeping and yet they cannot imagine wanting anything other than to go to hell. Uh, And again, I mean, just that sort of psychological, spiritual terror uh, upon beholding that. Eliot translates it into modern urban life. Uh, And then later in that same, uh, I don't even know whether to call Eliot's blocks of line stanzas, but I'll call it a stanza. Uh, Later in that same stanza... Uh, there's a sequence that begins, there I saw one I knew and stopped him crying Stetson. Uh, And again, the first time I read it, I thought, okay, you know, he sees someone in London, he knows. But again, this is an echo of so many scenes in The Inferno where Dante interrogates the damned. Uh, And again, you know, the parallel that he draws between modern urban life where everyone is going through these hellish scenes like michael was just describing uh not compelled by anyone with a gun to their head but simply because they can't imagine anything else uh is frankly once you've read dante an even more horrifying vision of modern urban life uh Mm -hmm. so i mean that that's my first one my second one uh to get a little bit more hopeful is flannery o'connor's story revelation uh which ends with a vision of purgatory uh filled not with 13th century Florentiners, but with 20th century Southerners. Uh, And I mean, it's just a wonderful sequence because this woman who insists that she's not a warthog from hell, and you got to go read the story if you want to know what that means, uh, (laughs) she has a vision of all of the classes of people she knows in early 20th century Georgia, I'm pretty sure, unless that story happens in Alabama. I I never can get O'Connor's settings straight. Uh, But they are marching towards paradise. Uh, But because of who they are, they need to be purged of their virtues. And I love that phrase. I mean, it's one that I remember best from O'Connor's corpus. Uh, And, you know, again, it is Dante's purgatory, but translated into a modern idiom. And I just love it. What do you got, David?
0: Uh one is low-hanging fruit. Um, I was glad that uh, you, that you focused on wasteland because I'm just going to uh, hat tip the love song of jail Alfred Proof Yep. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, which which begins with an uh, oh, epi, epigram? No, epi. epigraph. Thank you, epigraph. That's, I never can remember that word, <laughs> um, which is from uh, Inferno, uh, in which uh, – Untranslated. A particular, untranslated, so you <laughs> – you, you know, young young uh, uh, young T.S. Eliot was, uh, I guess, snobbish enough to uh, make his reader have to know Dante in Italian um, in order to get the, the reference – but uh, it, it's uh, a quoted line from a, a soul in 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 uh, in hell who Dante asks for his story, and uh, the soul in hell says, uh, I, w- "I wouldn't tell you my story if I didn't know that no one got out of here alive." <laughs> so the the the, the epigraph. Um, well it has many you know there there are many things that it that it can, many ways it can shade the poem that follows at least it gives you the idea that the love song of dial for proof rock is a story told in confidence that there's uh there's no way that that proof rock's going to going to to open his his heart like this if he has any notion that it's going to get out um and get back to uh, that woman whose whose arm he stared at through the whole party, or you know the other people drinking tea, um, you know the people who's who who he's afraid to ask questions to, um, and that made me go back to Inferno um, and think about think about all of the all of the dialogue that Dante has, um, you know, with 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 the. With the, with the souls in the hell and to try to think of them as proof rocks, um, because the, I mean a, a lot of them are very monstrous, um, and they can, they can be can be off putting. The deep the deeper you go, the more monstrous a lot of the the the, the souls in hell seem. Mm-hmm. But um, it, it, it was it was good for me to to I think to go back and. And to think to think of them as in life, they might have been more like a proof rock. Um, not necessarily all of them, but, you know, some of them. <laughs> anyway, uh, that, that's, you know, that's low hanging fruit. But, you know, hey, I don't read that much that actually comes after Dante. I figured you were going to um, do a Great
3: Divorce, David.
0: Um, great Divorce doesn't really uh, it, it was interesting, but I can't say that I've read it more than like once. Okay. Right. Um, it, it doesn't loom as large in in my imagination as even as even the Divine Comedy does, frankly. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: and it's more but, of a riff on George Bernard Shaw than it is on Dante. I think it, I think anyway.
0: Hmm. Though, uh, though it is kind of it is kind of interesting that his his Virgil character is is George MacDonald, um, a uh, a, Vic, a Victorian novelist uh, and a and a minister. Who I f- I think Lewis himself had um, maybe some of the same kind of respect, but uh, conflicted uh, uh, with exactly how to take him that the uh, Dante may have experienced with Virgil. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you, you you can tell in a lot of his books that Lewis is like, yeah, I'm not really sure that I can follow McDonald in this <laughs> at this point. Um, but he still respects him so much because McDonald basically baptized his imagination. Um so I, I I think you know one thing that the great divorce uh can do I think is is help illuminate the Dante Virgil relationship by giving you at least what CS Lewis what was what was for CS Lewis maybe a good parallel for him. Um though though honestly i think dante gives a good enough does, does a does a really good job of that already in the comedy when 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 beatrice finally stops talking and virgil's gone i really i really wanted to cry with dante at the end of Purgatory. because <laughs> I, I i i really I, I really did miss virgil i was very sad that virgil had to had to leave because i liked him
3: i'll say i like the virgil in dante's text more than the virgil who wrote the Aeneid.
0: fair enough well any last bits of advice for first-time readers of the of the comedy before we go
1: yes my my one big piece of advice and i'll make it a short one is don't stop at the end of the inferno the purgatory is by (laughs) far a more compelling story and again i'm going to diverge from michael here and say that the paradise is a theological treatise that is more pleasant and more enlightening than most theological treatises that you'll ever read.
3: I haven't read The the, the Paradise in, in a long time. I should go back and read it. Maybe it's better than I remember it being. But I agree that The Purgatory is better than The Inferno.
1: Right. And if you only know Meatloaf's version, it's actually much better in Dante. Yeah. <laughs>
3: at any rate the uh my my advice is to not get too hung up on ever- understanding every single little reference in there. I mean this goes back to our footnotes question um there are things you're going to have to look up or you won't understand what's going on but don't don't get too lost in that and and try to maintain a sense of the bigger point i mean this is good advice for anything like that any any giant book with lots of references i mean it's it's good advice for the epics it's good advice for big novels, it's good advice for all sorts of stuff. You're not going to understand Mm -hmm. everything.
0: Mm. Well, my only bit of advice, and this is kind of pedestrian, is when you are reading, you're not going to be able to read it all in one sitting. Obviously. Um, A lot of times it can be hard going. Um, The the language of it, the fact that it's poetry, um, modern readers haven't been trained to to read through poetry and with the same kind of momentum that they have when they read through a novel. Mm-hmm. And that, there's just not really much to be done about this. You just, just got to read more poetry and get better at it. Don't lose patience with yourself, um, you know, because because it's slow going, but Dante is, uh, Dante is kind. Uh, each, uh, each of the three, uh, books in the comedy are not, um, they're not just one big long run of continuous verses. He breaks it up into chunks for you. So, you know, try to, try to read it. Ch- try to read, you know, one, uh, one, what is it called stanzas cantos i, I, I don't i don't recall the, the name of the of the subdivisions but try to get to the end of one of those before you stop because it's almost impossible to pick up the thread of a poem like that if you stop in the middle of uh, in the, in the middle of a section um, try to try to get to the end and stop um, because uh, he he does a good job of dividing each each stanza into a particular topic. Um, each one of those, I think, is fairly manageable within um, within one read. Um, so you know, get, break, break it off into chunks like that. I, I know that the the first time that I tried to read through the comedy. Um, I ended up abandoning it because I wasn't doing that. I would stop in the middle of a canto, whatever they're called, and as a result, I kept losing the thread and having to go back. And so I reread the beginning of the same canto like you know eight times. Um, you know, just discipline yourself to get to the end of a section and then set it aside.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, also, if you can, if if you have a choice between editions with footnotes and endnotes. Get one that has end notes at the end of cantos, so that you can read through the canto and then get kind of the answers to the questions you had in that canto after you're done reading. I, I think that helps to, you know, kind of because you you can you can kind of remember the things that were confusing to you, um, you know, but you're not also breaking your rhythm by continually flipping back and forth. Um, at least that that's, that's that's been good for me so um i guess that's all we have to say about dante no that's not all we have to say about dante dante's an old friend that we're going to continue to visit again and again and again <laughs> whenever he has anything to say about the topic at hand but um i think that's all we have to say about getting people prepared to read dante so uh who's at the helm next week is it you michael
3: i am yes and we're going to be talking about autobiography as a genre
0: Ooh, fun are we going to talk about ben franklin
3: i assume we will assume we'll talk about augustine i don't know oh sweet deal yep so you have that to look forward to
0: awesome cool well i look forward to it um you should too uh listeners uh Because autobiography, it sounds like like a topic in which we can be expansive in our own areas, which, um, well, indulgently is most fun for us, I think. Um, In the meanwhile, if uh, you have any questions, any feedback about Dante, if you are a reader of Dante and there's any advice uh, that you have that we've left out – Anything like that, you can send us an email at theChristianHumanistGmail.com. At uh, you can leave a comment on the show notes when they post on our blog, ChristianHumanist.org. When you download this podcast, uh, if you do so from iTunes, please give us a rating. Um, we value it highly. But in the meanwhile, um, enjoy the rest of your week, uh, as I hope we will as well. And we'll catch you next week. But I leave you with the words of Luther. So, uh, on behalf of Michael Farmer, on behalf of Nathan Gilmore, this is David Grubbs uh, advising you to let your sin be strong, but to let your faith be stronger.
2: But well, I remember that little thing as if it happened only yesterday. Walking by the lake, and there was not another car inside. And I never.